and welcome to the third episode of the Petra Nerds podcast. My name is Trisha Curtis, and I will be your host for this podcast and many others to follow. Today, we have a special Christmas episode, so we're going to try to keep it on topic, uh, timely and short and sweet. I want to thank all of you who have uh, been listening to this podcast, and um, I know that I think my youngest listener is eight years old. She's my niece. So I encourage you guys to keep listening and share this. So today, we're going to talk about the the timely issues of um, the OPEC agreement, how much OPEC is actually producing right now, some of the issues that could go go awry with that or or why it could actually work, Um, and we'll talk about how the U.S. rig count um, inventory levels and production sort of fits in with that and and where, obviously, most of those rigs are, which is in the Permian Basin. And and then we're going to talk a little bit about um, water production. There was a a recent article in the Journal for Petroleum Technology on um, produced water and the management of produced water. So we'll, we're going to discuss some of the some of the aspects of that article and some of the topics that were brought up and just put into perspective how much produced water is actually being uh, being produced in the major shale basins. So the other thing I'd like to remind remind our listeners about, um, if you haven't checked it out before we get into this this third podcast, is the Oxford paper that we did with Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. I know I talked about it in my last podcast. Uh, we when we talked about a lot of companies, we talked about those well productivity gains within some of those companies, and that that Oxford paper goes through in detail a lot of the well productivity gains that we've seen take place in the Permian Basin the Bakken, and, and the Powder River Basin in Wyoming over the course of the downturn, so in 2015 and 2016. And we recently finished up a, a roadshow. I was in um, Oxford presenting this material at Oxford's Oil Day um, the day after Thanksgiving, and then I went to London the next week and spoke on a, a panel at Chatham House um, where we talked a lot about um, oil in the context of electric vehicles and green tech. And then we um, went to uh, D.C. for some meetings and New York as well. And there were some very interesting discussions at all these places, um, and it, it was relatively mixed. So um, some of the discussions we had at Chatham House really focused around uh, where we could get the analysis wrong. So would um, groups be, in their analytical thinking, would they be wrong that on, on not forecasting uh, demand properly um, or th- would they be wrong on not forecasting uh, supply properly? And we sort of concluded in that group that supply was a little bit more at risk, is that because of so many, uh, so many large reductions in capital expenditures that we may see um, in a couple of years to come some problems with that. But if you haven't checked out the paper, I really encourage you to do so. It's on our website. And uh, we'll have this new podcast posted, um, so you'll have all three podcasts you can check out along with some accompanying slides, slides for each. We are also going to start in the new year um, sponsorship opportunities, so if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of this podcast, um, please email me at trisha at petronerds.com or just go onto the contact page of our website at petronerds.com um, and reach out to us. We'd love to um, uh, talk about the sponsorship opportunities. Okay, without further ado, I'm going to jump right into what's happening uh, in the market right now with OPEC. Okay, so OPEC, the Organization for Petroleum Exporting Countries, 
Um, many of our listeners may know uh, a lot about or know U.S. production intimately, but may may know about OPEC uh, production a little less so. And there was a, a big meeting on November 30th um, where these all these countries got together and essentially agreed to a supply cut of 1.2 million barrels per day. And this, in turn, with a with a follow-on meeting with some non-OPEC members, including Russia. Um, increase the supply cut uh, furthermore past 1.2 million barrels a day and in, in initially led to a, a decent price response by the in the oil market with with prices moving up however those those prices have since come back a little bit and th- that's for a number of reasons partly um, technicals on the market and, and fundamentals as well as the uh, the the value of the dollar sort of surging um, with the uh, Yellen statements on um, several more rate hikes, including the one that just took place on regarding interest rates. So the, the value of the dollar is um, is going up and uh, oil is denominated in dollars. So that means as, as, the, as the dollar strengthens, oil prices actually tend to weaken. So there, it's kind of in a rub with the situation where we have this OPEC agreement. And the point of this conversation is to discuss how real this, this OPEC agreement is and, and what's really in it. And it was on the back of the meeting that took place on the sidelines in in Algiers in September, where these countries initially agreed that they were going to cut output. And the the market actually surged then a little bit as well, and everyone's sort of been waiting for this, this agreement. Now, what is unique about this agreement is that, um, you know, OPEC has sort of been silent, and not necessarily silent, but on the sidelines of this oil price downturn. So in November, um, in the fall and in November of, of 2014, when oil prices were really coming down, OPEC had decided not to do anything. And that was mainly because Saudi Arabia um, wasn't decided that they weren't going to be the only member nation to cut production. They were not going to leave uh, cut production and, and allow Iran and Iraq to increase their output and continue to gain market share in Asia. So what this, what's happened since then is these countries have all increased production dramatically. And uh, on the side, so as, the, as non-OPEC countries have reduced production, so the U.S. has, has lost about a million barrels a day uh, since April of 2015, um, and several other nations cumulatively, uh, non-OPEC countries have, have reduced output. Um, but in turn, almost all that output has been supplanted by increases in OPEC production. And so this meeting is pretty big, or this agreement is pretty big, because these countries came together and cumulatively agreed to cut um, over a million barrels of production. Now, the problem and um, the hesitation by some, some analysts and folks in the market and the, the resistance believing this is really going to happen is that typically OPEC production, when you look at their quotas, so um, they agree to a certain amount of number that they're a certain figure that they're allowed to produce. And typically, when you look at their quotas and look at their actual production production figures, they almost always over or produce outside of that. Um, many times they produce outside of that, so they produce more. And then these last several months, OPEC members have really increased their production. So um, they've been at record output levels for the past few months, several of these countries. And the reality here is that um, no non-OPEC global production has continued to sort of increase. So when we look at OPEC's share of production, um, they it was potentially diminishing um, when we look at um, global output. And this recent surge in production helped shore that up a little bit in saying that, you know, OPEC production is, is gaining its, its rightful share sort of back in the world. And that, that output has grown uh, significantly. So that output has actually grown. It's, it's about 34 million barrels per day, which is pretty significant um, given the 
you know, the lower levels that was, it was at before. So if we look at total OPEC production in uh, 2014, it was about 31 million barrels per day. Whereas if we're looking in, in November, um, the, the crude oil production figures that OP, the OPEC secretary uses from secondary so sources puts, it, puts OPEC production at 33.870 million barrels per day. So that's about 34 million barrels per day. So a significant ramp up, as you can see, about 3 million barrels per day. Now, this agreement, the biggest things on this agreement that people are talking about are, um, one, is Saudi Arabia's uh, agreement to cut just under um, 500,000 barrels per day. So that's partly one of the reasons of, of OPEC has agreed to cut 1.2 million barrels per day. But Saudi Arabia, which is producing about 10.7 million barrels per day right now, is only, only has to cut just under 500,000 barrels per day. So that means they get to continue producing over 10 million barrels per day, and they got an agreement from several other countries to help them reduce output and short prices. So that's under 500,000 barrels a day, and I'd say that's, I, I feel that's realistically doable, and, and I felt that was sort of what was gonna, what they were gonna come to the table with. Now, the other components are that um, Iran seemed happy with the deal because they, you had to agree, these countries had to come together and agree to particular reference levels of, of what they, the, a number, a number that they would agree on for a reference point that they would cut from. So Iran actually agreed to a 3.975 million barrel day reference level. Um, and then they actually added an adjustment. So if you look at the adjustment, it's an additional 90,000 barrels a day, but somehow they came up to a production level that was negative um, to that ends up being 3.8 million barrels per day. Now, if you look at the actual production figures from Iran, um, this is sort of a, a, a political issue because Iran wants to make sure that they're, you know, they're they're telling people what they're producing and that they still have the ability to to move upward a little bit. And since sanctions have been removed, they have or they've been able to increase output, but they've sort of been capped, and they need more investment um, to increase that output. So. Shell has just come into as as one of the first bidders on um, one of the bidding rounds in in Iran. So they've they're actively pursuing in, in reinvestment in Iran. So Iran, of course, doesn't want to give this all away and said that they, they don't want to increase any output. So they basically get a stay at the levels they're at. And if we look at what OPEC production showed for again from the from the secretariat from secondary sources, Iran was at um, in November 3.7 million barrels per day. If we look at what um, Iran communicated, so from direct sources, uh, again via an OPEC report, direct sources, Iran posts, they don't have a number for November, but they show they're producing 3.98, almost 4 million barrels per day um, for October. So there's obviously discrepancies in um, what is reported that they're producing and what is um, what secondary sources actually believe they're producing. And that's a that's a, a problem within the market. But regardless of all that, there's still a, a cut from Iraq of 210,000 barrels per day. So it moves them from about 4.6 million barrels per day to about 4.3, um, which which helps move this number. So and then you have so you have the Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates also agreed to cut about 140,000 barrels a day of production. So you can see cumulatively where this is coming from and, and little bits from from Algeria and Angola as well. Now, the trouble here is that um, there were a couple countries that were exempt from this, and that is Libya and Nigeria. And if you've seen the news at all, both of those countries have really struggled in production output. Libya struggled for years um, being this, this war-torn country. But um, recently, uh, production has actually come up a little bit. Um, and it's slightly problematic for this agreement because 
you know, the Wall Street Journal was just going, Libya, Libya restarts operations at key Western fields. And this is taking place. So there, there is some, uh, some who believe that we could see a, a bit of an uptick in, in Libyan production. And we could also see that um, pending, uh, you know, the political will and, and lack of uh, t- terrorist attacks in, in Nigeria, the same thing could happen. So Libyan output, when we look at this OPEC production figures again from the, the OPEC secretariat versus what the, the countries are reporting, and again, the, these are charts from OPEC, which are actually pretty decent. Um, and they, so when you look at Libya and Nigeria, for what was reported from secondary sources, uh, recent output in November was Libya was 575,000 barrels per day, and that's a, a, a pretty big uptick um, from the last several months. Or 2014, which was 470,000 barrels per day, so a, a decent uptick. And then Nigeria was stated at about 1.7 million barrels per day. Now, when we look at the direct communication from them, we don't have a figure from Libya, but we do have from Nigeria, and it's slightly above that. So it's about 1.8 million barrels per day. So those two countries that are exempt could pose problems if they keep increasing output up. And even if that's only 100,000 or 200,000 barrels a day, that eats into um, that 1.2 million barrel a day production cut figure that was agreed to by all these other nations. So that could potentially be problematic. Now, the other thing to note here is how they, the terms in which they they talked about this agreement um, and how they did it. And they did talk about supply. So part of this uh, or or they did talk about um, um, excuse me, not supply, storage and stock. So Part of this agreement was to, you know, they are attempting to bring down stock levels. So one of the biggest issues in this oil price um, downturn is that we we have reduced output in non-OPEC countries. We've increased output in OPEC countries, but we haven't reduced stock levels. So these the inventory levels of crude have been rising, specifically in the in the U.S. If you look at recent crude oil inventories in Cushing. Now, in other places in the world, we are seeing some stock levels decrease. And OPEC put this agreement um, in place, and some are rather optimistic about this because they're, they believe that OPEC is, is starting this when stock levels are finally starting to decrease. And that, um, that could be positive for the market because it could reinforce um, uh, an increase in, in, in driving these stock levels down, which will then come back into supply and then um, you know, move prices higher. Okay, those countries that agreed um, outside of OPEC, so that was another important meeting that took place, and that was December 10th, um, and which a lot of folks said was quite momentous in that you had non-OPEC members also agreeing to a supply cut. Um, these members included mo- um, uh, Sudan and South Sudan, uh, Russia, and most importantly, it, w- it was really um, Russia involved in this. So. At the conclusion of that meeting on December 10th, the, the supply cut agreement was 558,000 barrels per day. But that included not just um, supply cuts, but also um, declines that were probably already going to take place in some of these countries. So many could argue that it's not going to have a huge impact on on total um, output figures. Now, let's remember that Russia is producing well over 11 million barrels per day. We're, we're seeing 11.2, 11.3 mil, million barrels a day of production, and Russia was planning on increasing output um, by a few hundred thousand barrels a day next year. So we could have easily seen sort of 11.6, 11.7 million barrels a day, according to um, analysts that are very familiar with um, with Russian production c- capabilities. Now, so if Russia um, 
actually does reduce output um, by 300,000 barrels per day. That would put them at sort of 11 million barrels a day or just under 11 million barrels per day. What is probably more realistic is that Russia just isn't going to grow production. So that Russia, we would see them sort of 11.2, 11.3 million barrels a day of production. And that means this additional agreement um, by, by multiple countries um, and most notably Russia, is probably not going to um, contribute that much into the overall um, production cut scenario. Now, it's important to note that this is a six-month agreement. So this agreement is supposed to take place uh, beginning January 1st. So again, when, when they agreed to this in, on November 30th, they were using October um, supply figures from their countries. And when the November figures came out, they were... Uh, a bit higher for all these countries. So they've in increased supply, and you'll probably see that um, either maintained or increased uh, production output in these countries um, for December as well. But in January, that's when we were going to really look at those figures and see where have they decreased. Now, one component of this is that Cushing inventories are, are still rel very high. So if you, if you look at recent crude oil inventory figures um, in the U.S., Cushing figures are, are, are very high. And if those continue to increase, we're, we're looking at um, getting very close uh, to full utilization in the U.S. for, for storage in, in Cushing, Oklahoma. And remember, Cushing is, the, is where the paper contract for West Texas Intermediate Crude, WTI, it actually settles on the NYMEX, the New York, Stock, or New York Mercantile Exchange. So that's where um, that paper contract settles. So it's a very important point for, for how this works is that Brent, um, which is also important, and that's the other major, major um, oil reference point is you have Brent and WTI, but, but WTI specifically has had trouble on those inventory levels, and this could be where um, Saudi Arabia may target um, imports into the U.S. So remember that uh, Saudi Arabia right now is still exporting over a little over a million barrels a day into the U.S. currently, and that's because they have a, a refiner in the Gulf um, that they send that to. Now, they have these, um, these sort of reference points in which they can they can adjust their um, their nominations that they're sending into the, these operational levels that they can they can send in crude. So they have some flexibility in how they they basically cut their output. So they can send uh, they sort of have a plus or minus ten percent that they can uh, of contracted volumes that they can send to these refiners. So they can say they're sending you know a million barrels a day, but they can adjust that plus or minus 10% on, on either side. And that gives them a lot of flexibility in all these their contracts with refiners to help them reduce output. Um, and one of the ways some analysts are suggesting that they're going to do this is by targeting the U.S. in particular, so that we start seeing a drawdown in, in Cushing inventory levels, and therefore um, uh, and we start impacting the market. Now, this could be problematic, because if you see this drawdown you're gonna and you see a response in prices, we are seeing, we are already seeing an impact in what's happening um, in the U.S. And that's sort of the segue here where we, we really do need to understand how um, the U.S. Is, is being seen here. Now, I think from the very beginning, there's been a lot of contention, a lot of arguments, and, and analysts are sort of all over the place in, in how Saudi Arabia and OPEC viewed U.S. shale um, in 2014. And they, they've referenced U.S. shale in a, in a number of manners and ways. Um, I think it was pretty clear that, um, in, in my opinion, that they didn't fully understand uh, what was happening in the U.S. So they may or may not have uh, t been targeting U.S. shale by increasing their output and, and letting prices go down. Um, I think the reality is, is that OPEC was wanting oil to be um, a long-term placeholder in, in um, energy, to, in future, long-term future energy demand. 
So they wanted to drive out high-cost production. Now, some folks in OPEC, and that could be Saudi Arabia, might have believed that the high-cost production was shale. And at the time, it was. But what we've seen, um, and we've talked about at length in these podcasts and, and in our reports, is that, that those cost levels are coming down. Now, the question is, is how are they going to react to this, this price swing? And, and will that price, as the prices move up, will they be high enough to really induce Ship, um, production to continue to grow. And that's where this, this gets into how much does OPEC and Saudi Arabia really know. And I think there might be a misunderstanding of how much um, some of these outside nations understand the intricacies of what's happening right now in the shale patch. And that goes back to these well productivity gains that we've talked about so extensively, is that um, a lot of these producers have responded pretty aggressively to the low oil price environment, and they're doing relatively well. Um, so this this includes being cash flow neutral or cash flow positive um, and continuing to at least keep production flat or trying to actually increase output. And as we've seen oil production – or uh, as we've seen oil prices increase, we've seen a response in the rig count, a significant response. Now, that rig count response obviously is, is – uh, tilted toward the Permian Basin. So much of the much of Permian Basin, uh, or much of the, the rig increase in the U.S. has obviously been in, in the Permian Basin. And we can see that in May the May 13th, the Baker Hughes uh, Permian Basin rig count was 133 rigs were drilling in the Permian Basin. Um, December 16th, 258 rigs. So that's a considerable increase, well over 100 rigs. Now, obviously, it takes some time for those, those rigs to actually see a production responses, and we're, we're looking at least three to six months. But it's important to know here that that, that rig response was happening um, because of the, in the summer when prices had hit $50 and those, the rigs sort of um, tended to increase. And you can see that it, when you look at WTI crude oil prices and you put that against the rig count, the rig count always lags that. So prices will, will go up to a certain level. A lot of these companies um, came in to, to shore up production, and, and um, the banks were pushing them uh, to lock in prices of 50 and, and continue producing. And so the companies did, and we saw the rig count increase. And again, this was particularly in the Permian Basin. And we've seen that response um, increase. So the rig count has continued to rise, especially in every week we're seeing a, a, a continued rise in this rig count. And that is important because we are going to start seeing some supply output from this. Now, we could argue, anyone could argue that the shale producers are going to, could react relatively quickly. So um, if prices, you know, falter and come down a bit, you know, you're going to see these, these rig increases falter. You're going to see them flatten and, and probably come off a little bit. Um, but if these producers are, are locking in hedges and they're comfortable with these price points and they can produce within this level and, it, and it's cash flow neutral, cash flow positive, this could be a whole different ballgame. And that's going to be tricky um, for OPEC because if the supply response is significant on, um, on the U.S. side, it means that these prices could be relatively muted. And again, coming back to the value of the dollar, this is preventing prices, um, oil prices from really um, pushing those upward bounds excuse me, pushing, the, pushing those upward boundaries and, and upward limits. So we, we haven't really seen a breakout. Um, you know, we've seen this 51 to sort of 53 range, and, and now we're moving relatively in there, but we haven't seen a breakout past $55 uh, WTI. And that's important. it's an important level and, and would be a, a pretty significant point for these, these shell producers. Now, that's also important because um, if the Cushing inventories are – 
as they continue to rise, this suggests that your, your forward price is higher. So you have, you have a contango in the market, which means that contango means that your futures price is higher than your current price. So it incentivizes storage, and it means that you can, you have, you can pay for the, that storage and then sell that crude later and get a higher price for it. And the difference between the current price and the future price is, is enough to basically pay for that storage and give you a little bit of profit um, or just at least pay for that storage. So that's currently what's happening. Now, if it was to go into backwardation, that's what would draw those stocks down. And that means that the forward price would be, um, would be less than the current price. Um, and so it would disincentivize the storage levels. So you'd want, to, you'd want to sell it now. And if we look at the, if we go back for a second and we look at this rig count, because I know a lot of folks have really spent a, a lot of time and a lot of focus on the rig count. In the U.S., we've seen basically the same companies. Of I'm just comparing this, looking back at it, at a presentation I did in March. So at the end of March, we had 476 rigs running, and now we have well over 700 rigs running in the U.S. So a considerable increase. The trajectory has changed um, completely. But the companies, the top drillers were were Pioneer and Continental and XTO, and those are roughly the the top drillers right now. And they haven't significantly increased their rig counts. But you have several other guys down the line of um, that have, have increased their rig counts by one or two or three, um, and that's having an impact. And you're seeing the drillers like Helmer and Payne have the, have the largest share of those of that increase. So um, Helmer and Payne, HP, has 115 rigs currently running right now. You have Neighborson, Patterson, UTI, Precision Drilling. So all these um, nomadic drilling, Cactus, all these companies with, with these, these great rigs that they've had sort of sitting on the sidelines, they've been bringing that, them back. And if we look at just the reservoirs, that if we look at the rig count um, by reservoirs, you can see that the, the trend area, which is that the main reservoir in the Midland side, so the right foot of the Permian Basin, that's, that's dominating the, the rig count. And that has 104 rigs just, just targeting the, the trend area reservoir. And then the Wolf Camp has 74. So the Permian Basin is clearly has, has the lockdown on those, but we also see um, a significant amount. Of, we have 23 rigs in the Mississippian. Um, we have 19 rigs targeting the Niobrara, 15 in the Eagle Ford, etc. So the point is the, the rig count increase is obviously um, being heavily weighted in, in the Permian Basin. We're, we are seeing increases in, in other places, but not nearly as much. And where we've seen the most significant and robust well productivity gains have also been the, in the Permian Basin. And that's important to think about when we're looking at what the, what the production outlook and trajectory is going to be in the U.S. with these rig, uh, the rig increase responses. It's also important to think about in, the, in this whole OPEC picture um, is how U.S. supply has, has responded to price and how it took a while to come off. So we, we've reduced output in the U.S. from 9.6 million barrels per day to 8.6 million barrels per day. Um, but that took two years to happen. You know, that took full two years for the output to, to start, you know, really coming off. Um, and obviously it lags significantly prices. And now we're sort of in this, um, in this muted price range in the 50s, um, and this may very well may be a point in which um, many operators um, can you know, stabilize. At least they, some of them can increase output, and, and many of them can actually stabilize. We're probably going to see another tranche. We'll continue to see tranches of bankruptcies, as we have done in the last several months, and ratchet up. And it is, we have seen over 100 um, North American bankruptcies to date um, since this downturn, and that, that may... V- very well may continue to increase. But these have largely been, um, as we've noted before, much smaller producers that don't attribute a lot to production. Okay, so with that, um, we're going to stop on OPEC here and, and U.S. supply, and we're going to move into um, the water production pitcher. 
Okay, in the recent Journal of Petroleum Technology magazine, there was an article on produced water. Basically, it was called More Oil, More Water, and it's uh, by Trent Jacobs, the editor, one of the editors at, of JPT, at journal, the Journal for Petroleum Technology. And the, this uh, article had me thinking. I, I've thought a lot about produced water, and, and we don't have any current products on it right now, um, but we certainly um, look at it when we, we look at production and production guidance. And um, it's a big concern, or it's a growing concern, I would say, right now, because produ the produced water costs producers um, a, a good deal of money to dispose of um, and deal with. So rising production essentially means you're going to have rising water production, um, at least in certain areas. So certain shale plays have more water production than others do. And it is a big cost component for producers. So in this article, it was estimated that um, it could be up to half of a shale well's operating expenses. Um, and it's important to think about, I guess, in, in a rising oil price environment or, or a slightly rising oil price environment where we're thinking about operators that are going to be increasing their capital expenditures. Um, if these rising water uh, production that's going to come with it, particularly in the Permian Basin, um, if that will eat into part of their um, the capital expenditures. Um, so the increase in activity, you basically have a surge in production. Um, you have a surge in, you could have a surge in water production, and this, thus you could have a, a surge in the handling costs uh, of this water. But it really depends on, on sort of the pace of activity. So um, I, I would imagine in the Permian Basin, um, you know, that's probably where you could see it first, is that you could see an increase in um, in produced water handling costs. And this is where this uh, this, this paper um, and article in, the, in this magazine is sort of proposing is that that's where we could attribute some of the, the most recent gains, and that it could have knock-on effects also um, in North Dakota and the Eagle Ford as well. Now, it, produced water management is it's a very complex and costly process, um, and that's partly because you have uh, fewer options than conventionals. And this article did a good job sort of explaining what those were. And the, in the conventional industry, you can re-inject, typically you can re-inject um, produced water into your, into your reservoirs, either for, for later in the field's life for, um, S, for EORs, for enhanced oil recovery, um, uh, through water flooding. But you need, uh, the, the unconventional industry needs disposal wells, Due to the amount of volume of, that you're producing, particularly in the um, in the first year or two that you're producing it, um, and even if all the fracturing was done, so even if all the hydraulic fracturing was done with produced water, um, this would only attribute a small fraction to the actual water that's being produced. And we'll talk about this in a moment when we start getting into the the graphs that I have in, in some of these slides for produced water um, for horizontal wells and these shale plays. But there, there's also something to know is that. Um, Prior to the downturn, a lot of water was a lot of water for hydraulic fracturing in, in these unconventional shale and tight oil wells was f fresh water. So it was from freshwater sources, and it was not recycled. That changed pretty quickly. Um, I would say for some producers before the downturn and increased in the downturn. So as we've seen, prop up volumes increase. So sand volumes have increased significantly, and we've talked about that before. Um, but the fluid side has also increased significantly. So if they're using a, a typical slick water where it's, it's, you know, some basic chemicals, sand, and water, those volumes have increased um, two to three times. And so they're using the majority of the industry right now is using recycled water to fracture those wells. Um, and the reality is, is that that's just not keeping up with the amount of produced water. So even if you use um, 
if the entire industry was using recycled water to um, frack all the wells, it still wouldn't make a huge, huge dent in the amount of produced water and the, the costs and um, everything you have to do to dispose of this water. Okay, so what are the options to, how do you deal with it? So a, a, a shale well, you bring it on, let's say IPs at 1,000 barrels per day, and you get a chunk of produced water, and we'll talk about those volumes again with the place in a minute. Um, what do you do then with that produced water? That produced water has been there for as long as the oil has been there. So it's, um, it was part of the depositional environment. So it's, it's got a lot of contaminants in it, um, including you know oil particles, et cetera, and it can have some, some solids in it as well and, and and salt and everything else. So um, you have to treat that. So you typically have to take that, um, do some kind of treatment to that, either at the well site or facility. Um, you have to pull out those contaminants. Um, you have to truck the water. Um, you typically haul it via trucking. And then you uh, put it into a disposable and you, you pump this water down hole into a specified um, reservoir that is set by, in, in North Dakota, you, you have a specific reservoir that I think it's the Dakota sand that um, the disposal wells that you pump the water into, and it, obviously at certain injection rates at certain speeds and everything which are um, which are regulated now more pipelines are something that 's obviously called for by um, it, lots of folks within and outside of the industry is that water hauling attributes um, to a lot of trucks on the road, so the typical truck um, only carries about one hundred and thirty barrels of water, so when these um, fields are producing a lot of oil, it requires a lot of trucks to, to take that produced water and haul it to a disposal facility and then dispose of it. Um, and that clearly has a has a cost component. And, you know, I've seen um, reports where it's it's between, you know, in 2015 was about $4 on estimates for some, depending on what the, the transportation cost was and then the disposal cost. Um, but I remember in North Dakota, at least in 2014, it being high as, as could be up to $6. And it's, it is a huge component of the overall operating costs um, that can go into these wells. And it, as prices, as you would expect service prices and stuff to rise, this might be a component of it as well, that you would see some, some rising costs with this. Now, some suggest in this article that you could have some potential problems, say, in certain areas of the Permian Basin where you see a significant ramp-up in production and haven't seen a corresponding ramp-up in the amount of disposal wells and water handling facilities to handle it. So if you don't have enough sites nearby, you would therefore increase water hauling. Um, If there's a given pipeline, you would increase that, but... We don't have too many uh, of those major pipelines built yet, but you would increase the, you know, the, the trucks to haul that water, um, which would in, thereby increase costs. Um, and you could, the, the article suggests by, by some models um, that you could see hit upper injection limits on some of these wells, if, you, if your disposal wells, um, if in certain areas you're producing um, a whole lot of oil and a whole lot of water that comes with it. Now, several operators are investing um, in sort of a, a large-scale infrastructure. So it's, it's currently realized, I mean, it's a realization that if you're producing all this water, you need to have investments for the long term to haul it. So it's not just um, trucks and, and disposal wells, but that you have pipelines um, from well sites and you have infrastructure and you have water treatment facilities. But it's really sort of still in the early stage of this, um, and it's going to take time for that to take off, partly because it's you had the downturn. So from 2014 to now, um, it's been hard for companies to set aside a lot of capital expenditures for increased um, infrastructure spending. Now, some companies have, and we noted this in, in our report, that some companies have taken this opportunity with um, reduced costs on, on certain components, like water hauling, to build out the infrastructure and therefore capture some of the upside 
um, when they start increasing their activity that they, one, will be handling their own water, and two, hopefully it will be done cheaper um, with more efficient systems. But the problem is that you've got, you've got to have a whole system where you, you, you frack your well, you produce water, um, and then you would reuse some of that, obviously, for in the recycling process, and, and then you would need to dis- dispose of that water. And that's what the industry is current, currently doing now. So you probably have a lot of, um, in terms of you treat that water simply and then you, you refracture it. But if you're, you, you're going to need larger scale operations to sort of handle those, those treatment facilities in order, not just for recycling, but then uh, in the future to dispose of that. Now, unconventionals also pose a different issue on, than the conventional side, as this article points out, because um, you're, you have tighter well spacing clusters. So you have more wells um, in, in a in a closer proximity to one another. So you're going to have more production and more output um, in a given area, which means that you're going to have to, um, you're going to, have to move the, take that water to some disposal site nearby. Uh, the other side of this is that uh, shale development was also relatively patchy. So when it first started, your companies were looking for the best spots, right? They were looking for the, the sweet spots and, and, and learning the geology. And so their, their wells and their infrastructure were relatively patchy. And they're just sort of getting to this point um, as the industry um, grows in a, its development stage to where they can, um, they're working on building that infrastructure. And obviously, it really depends on, on how much money and, and how much capital e- each individual company has on ha- and what access they have to infrastructure in order to to, to take advantage of this. The other, the other side of, of shale wells is that um, just like oil production, that has an, uh, when, you, when you turn on these wells and you open up the choke, you have a, a high initial production rate, and, and then it begins to decline, and you produce most of your oil in the first um, year of the, of the life of the well. And that, is for, that in, also um, is the same for all the products that come up with the well. So you have associated gas production that's also high, um, that c- comes out of the well in the, in the first year of production, and you have to have um, the adequate pipeline capacity to deal with that. But then that production comes off, and it's the same for water. So the water production is very high in the first year um, of that well, and you're producing most of that associated water production in that first year, and then it begins to decline. So that's where when you see a lot of increased activity in, in a given area, you're going to have increased needs for, for water handling and disposal. And as the, the field sort of plateaus or a, a a company's given given wells um, sort of plateau, then you have less need for that the huge volume of um, the less need for for large disposal volume needs. Now, as we've talked about a little bit before, um, with with the increased use of propent, you are using obviously more water, so uh, you're you're putting a lot of water down hole, and you get about. Um, you get a chunk of that water back. So it's called flowback water. And so in that first year that you're producing that oil and that IP rate, you're getting about 30 to 40% of that produced water, according to this article, for the life of the well. And about 20% of that is flowback water. So that includes the fluids that you used in fracking, um, and that's growing in volume, right? So as you increase the, the amount of water that you're pumping down hole in your fracture and treatment, you're increasing the amount of fluids that you're going to get back um, in that flowback water. And this is you've done this in order to basically put more propent um, down the wells. And some are attributing the operators are basically using two to three times more water just than they were a few years ago, just as they're, they're utilizing two to three times more sand sometimes um, in a given well, to fracture a given well bore. Now, the cost of trucking, which is the predominant method of hauling water um, in industry to date, is that you 
um, is extremely expensive. And we all know the anecdotal evidence from North Dakota and, and Texas where, you know, truckers, um, if you have a CDL license, can make a very decent living by hauling water and, and trucking it. And so this is a huge amount of um, capital expenditures that the companies have to put in um, into this. But it also has an, a negative component, and that's that it increases the, the truck traffic on the road. So it increases traffic, and this has been linked to the majority of sort of accidents um, that have taken and collisions that have taken place around active shale plays, according to this article. Now, pipelines could, can move this um, this produced water more continuously, or can move it and do so continuously, where it would be therefore um, quieter, obviously, and, and technically safer for the roads, um, and it would obviously probably reduce some of the environmental risks. And some operators have actually committed to building um, long, you know, large net water hauling networks um, of pipelines. But this, again, is still very much in its infancy. Now, but because of this um, and the amount of money that is spent on this, this is a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, and even in the downturn, it was, I mean, this is, this is billions and billions of dollars that the companies are spending on trucking and hauling. And so you are seeing some investment take place in this space. And you are seeing a growing industry of, of third-party um, sort of companies. These, these, they act as a, a third-party midstream sort of water, water company where they would build out. And you're seeing in the Permian Basin and other places where pipelines are being built out. Um, and operators um, can subscribe to them and therefore and haul their water. One of them is by um, noted in this article is by Oilfield Water Logistics. It's a 150,000 barrel a day water pipeline. It is located in in New Mexico in the Delaware Basin. Again, the the left foot of the Permian Basin. And it's um, several operators have um, have locked into it and and have access to this pipeline. Uh, Chevron is one of them, and this pipeline is able to. Um, or will be able to basically remove a thousand um, water trucks essentially a day off the road. So a thousand trucks that would normally be hauling this water in a given day will will no longer be needed because these producers will be will be um, sending their water via pipeline. Now another component of this is that you have to increase the processing infrastructure as well. If you have to increase uh, the amount of disposal wells and you have the increased volume of, of water just to handle. Um, you, the processing infrastructure is necessary. So it isn't like you can just take this water and then pump it down a disposal well. You have to uh, remove any solids and other contaminants before you can inject this. Now, there are well-side treatment technologies, um, but a lot of companies who are producing you know, a lot of oil and a lot of associated water need larger scale, um, you know, need larger facilities to really do this at scale. And sm- small and mobile units are working, but it's just not to the extent depending on how much oil you're pr- oil and water you're producing. So infrastructure is certainly being thought about as, um, as prices rise and stabilize, um, but one has to remember that there are still cash flow constraints with these companies. So um, large-scale investments in, in infrastructure for at least some companies haven't been um, on you know, the most important item for them to invest in. However, um, Pioneer Natural Resources in the Permian, as this article notes as well, has, um, is working to invest in these in a large water treatment facility um, in the Permian Basin where they would handle and recycle their water for, for fracturing. And that they say upon completion of this project, it will essentially move uh, 2,000 trucks. It will be the equivalent of 2,000 um, trucks a day. Um, now, this article really concludes with 
with um, the needing of multi-purpose water facilities um, and that we're clearly going to need um, disposal wells for a long time in the industry because of the of uh, the necessity of them and and how they need to be sort of nearby their producers and that they're not yet large-scale facilities to handle all this water and part of that is because the legal and regulatory issues of of produced water and the actual transferring of ownership um, have um, haven't changed yet. So even if you fully recycle your article, your water, sometimes it's hard to transfer the ownership of that water so it can be utilized for something else. There are some small, there are some limited examples of this in California where water has been recycled and used um, in in irrigation for almonds and I think tangerines, as the as this uh, article points out. And some other uh, Texas A and M has done some things, but this hasn't been done on a significantly large scale. Now. This is, um, and we, we've talked about this, that initially this uh, recycling is, a, is something everybody would like, and it already is a huge component, but the problem is that the amount of produced water is overwhelming, and so it doesn't matter if, if we use all, all recycled water in hydraulic fracturing, it's still not going to be enough to handle the overall amount that's being produced. Another component to all this, there's clearly been increased seismicity in the U.S., and this article quotes, it has a little box in this section, and I, I'm going to quote the article that says, high rate injection activity in disposal wells connected to fault prone formations has been cited by both industry and government experts as the primary um, contributing factor in induced seismicity in the U.S. So there are some areas where regulators have actually reduced um, the, the amount, the supply that you can put into disposal wells um, and, and actually reduce the, the the functionality of this, and operators um, have had to essentially travel farther if they're producing in the area to, to truck and dispose of this water. Um, one notable area is the Mississippi Lime Formation in Oklahoma, where regulators have actually um, been forced to shut in some of these disposal facilities. And I think the, the reality in this is that um, it, it can be done safely, and in areas where you, you don't have um, that's the, the fault-prone um, activity or you don't have your areas are not fault prone you haven't seen issues like in north dakota is one of them um it it just isn't fault prone now this means that you really have to understand the rocks the geology the geomechanics and the and seismicity to make sure that um you're able to dispose of this water properly and and regulators have to be a part of that along with the industry to make sure that they're doing this um in a manner that that works out properly okay now we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about what, given all this information, what are the actual produced water volumes in these shale plays. So if we look at the Permian Basin, um, the volumes, and we compare them, and you can see this on some of these sides if you compare them to other oil plays, it's a lot. So um, I'm just looking at horizontal wells in the Permian Basin, so I'm not looking at old vertical wells or even newer verticals. I'm just looking at horizontal wells so we can capture um, the proper um, you know, activity for the unconventional industry and looking at what the water production is and the liquids production. So if we look at the Permian Basin, horizontal oil and water production, the number of wells we're talking about is just over 13,000 wells. Um, the liquid, or you know, the oil um, slash liquids production is about 1.3 million barrels per day. And the amount of water that comes with that is about 3.3 four million barrels per day. That is a lot of associated water to deal with. So you're looking at three times um, the water that you are for oil. And so as you increase your production and activity um, in the Permian Basin, you can see that you're going to have an increased amount of associated water. And this is just because the, the Permian Basin um, 
is as much as it's oil rich, it's also water rich. Um, so this comes with it. And if we look at the, I put some decline rates of just for water um, from these wells, and you can see that, um, as, as the article uh, um, pointed out, that these the the water declines just like it does with oil. But when these water when these wells first come on, the amount of water they're producing is is a, it's a huge amount. So these companies have to deal with that. And it's important to think about that when we're thinking about how activity levels increase um, and how much these companies are going to have to spend and what the well costs are going to look like. And there will be associated well costs with or associated per barrel costs um, with trucking and hauling and disposing of water. So if we, uh, if we move on and look at the Wilson Basin, the, the amount of wells we're talking about for horizontal wells is just is almost 13,000 wells. Um, the liquids and oil production, um, you know, oil production in, in the Wilson Basin um, for our figures is just under a million barrels per day. And um, water production is about 1.2 million barrels per day. So it's almost one-to-one. It's a little over a one-to-one ratio. And the decline curve is very similar to um, the oil production decline curve. It's sort of uh, last year, 2016, it was just over 500 barrels per day, your IP water production, and then it declines considerably. And I'd say for the Permian Basin, it's, you know, you can see the difference because the IP, it IPs at 1,000 barrels per day on average in the last couple of years. So a lot of water production, and that's, that's higher than the given IP for, um, for oil production on average in the Permian Basin. Now, denver julesburg Basin, by comparison, and I, I use these different, di- different ones and show them because water isn't constant, and the amount of water you produce is not constant in all these basins, and therefore your um, associated cost to deal, haul, and you know, dispose of this water is going to vary because uh, certain basins aren't producing as much water as others. And uh, so in the denver julesburg Basin, there's only um, about 4,500 uh, horizontal wells. And the liquids or oil production, um, oil production in the DJ Basin right now for horizontal wells only is um, 280,000 barrels per day and about 94,000 barrels per day um, of associated water, so significantly less. Um, the ratio is obviously a lot less, and so you, your, your water hauling components are, are going to be, your water hauling needs and infrastructure are going to be a lot less um, in the DJ. Now, Powder River Basin, it is similar as well. So you don't have a higher water cut than you do oil. So there's only, there's just over 1,000 horizontal wells in the Powder River Basin in Wyoming. Um, the liquids production or oil production is 66,000 barrels per day, and your water production is about 47,000 barrels per day. So currently, it's still, it's still well under um, a one-to-one ratio. So you're, you're not producing nearly as much water as you are in, in some other places. Now, in the Eagle Ford, um, again, it's a lot less. So we, we can see that the Permian and the Bakken um, produce more, more water than they actually do per barrel of oil. But in the Eagle Ford, the, um, you have almost all the wells there have been horizontal. Um, there's fi- just over 15,000, 15,400 um, wells uh, that are horizontal in the Eagle Ford Reservoir. And the liquids, um, liquids and oil, again, this is about half, half oil, half condensate, is just over a million barrels per day right now, about a million barrels per day. And the water production is 600,000 barrels per day. So, again, almost, almost half of, of the oil production right now. So that is the amount, um, and I hope that gives you some food for thought on water. And uh, with this, we'll conclude.
I want to thank everyone for listening to this podcast today, the third episode of um, the Petronerds podcast. Um, I want to thank all my listeners. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I know we have, we're, we've been increasing our listeners um, every month, and I think that's fantastic. Again, if you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, which we are launching in 2017, please reach out on our website or email me at tr- trisha at petronerds.com. Uh, I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and thank you for listening to this uh, this very special Christmas edition of the Petronas Podcast. Thank you very much.